Hi everyone, we are Oxford Society for International Development and welcome to our new podcast series. My name is Rachel Trippier and I'm Oxford's Europe Officer. I'm delighted to be continuing our podcast series today, joined by Jonathan Watts, The Guardian's Global Environment Editor. Jonathan has been a journalist at The Guardian for 24 years, taking up roles such as East Asia correspondent, disaster coverage and North Korea visiting reporter. Jonathan co-founded both the China Environmental Press Awards and the Rainforest Journalism Fund, which raises awareness of urgent environmental issues facing the world's tropical rainforests. Today in the podcast, we'll be exploring Jonathan's experience in journalism, some climate activism and a green recovery from the coronavirus pandemic. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me today and welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Rachel. It's great to be here. Right. So if we should get started, could you tell us a little more about how you got into journalism? I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be keen to hear the story of how you got to be where you are today. Um, yes, uh, it was a mix of good fortune and being of being in the right place at the right time and realising fairly late in life that that's what I wanted to do. I spent most of my youth wanting to be a footballer or, or a spy or a bank robber, like most of my generation. Um, but and, and I, I sort of came to journalism indirectly through Japan. I went to Japan after I graduated from Manchester University in literature and was teaching English there for a while in the early 90s and then went back to the UK to study Japanese and MA level. And as a part-time job, I was working as an assistant for a Japanese correspondent in London for a newspaper called the Hokkaido Shimbun. And I was making the tea and I was doing some translation and organizing trips and just generally being a dog's body. And I very quickly realized this is exactly the field I wanted to be in. My boss had the life I dreamed of. He was in a different country. He had an excuse to be curious about everything, to travel extensively, to meet really uh, fascinating people. And it's like an excuse to explore all your, all your life, exploring geographies, but also exploring ideas and change. Um, and so once I had sort of had this epiphany, um, I was already, what, 23, 24. Was, but then I thought, what do I need to become a journalist? And I, I thought, right, I, what I want to be is a, is, is a correspondent in, in Japan. That was the country I knew most about. I spoke uh, the language fairly well. So I thought, okay, what, what I need, I, I just drew a list. I need to speak better Japanese. I need experience as a journalist. I need some experience as a freelancer. I need a qualification. And so I, I just went out and, and gradually got those. And then I got a very lucky break. I was doing, I, I switched and, and did another MA, this time in journalism. And halfway through that, I got a job uh, working as a sort of a copy editor in Tokyo for a Japanese newspaper. And before I left the UK, I, I contacted The Guardian and said, look, I'm on my way. Uh, I've got some experience. I've done this freelance work. I'm cheap. I'm available. I'm eager. Uh, will you give me a chance? And the editor at the time uh, said, show, us, show me some work you've done. And I, I showed him a piece I'd done for the big issue, which I hadn't got paid for, but turned out to be the most valuable piece of journalism I did in my life. And he liked what I'd written. And he said, OK, give you a chance. You can send us two or three stories and we'll judge you on that. And so, yeah, the rest developed very nicely and I, I just became very lucky. So I, I got into journalism through Japan. I didn't directly go into journalism and I think 
that's more difficult these days. If there are any journalism students listening, they'll know, you know, generally speaking, the, the big media organizations only hire you if you have the right qualifications from the beginning. But yeah, I mean, uh, it's a mix of realizing what you want to do, knowing what you need to have in terms of qualifications and experience, and then having that, that little bit of luck being in the right place at the right time. Yeah, since 1996, I've been a journalist. I can't quite believe it. 24 years. Wow, that's fantastic. Obviously, very diverse and interesting job. Could you tell us very briefly about what your favourite part of your job as a journalist has been? I think my favourite part is the excuse to explore, to be really curious and to go to places you wouldn't ordinarily go or to have a front row seat to things that you normally wouldn't get to see so 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 close up unless you were really part of things. So I've been extraordinarily fortunate and, and been able to attend Olympics and World Cups and G8 summits and to also visit places that as a child I, I you know, were, were far away magical places that I'd never dreamed I'd actually get to, like the Himalayas and the Amazon and Antarctica and uh, North Korea and, and and all of these kinds of places, and it's just endlessly fascinating to to be on the road. Uh, but but even more than that, and something perhaps I didn't anticipate quite as much at the beginning, but is to see how human beings behave in different extremes. Because journalists tend not to go with the humdrum; you're always looking for change and extremes. Uh, and so, in in a crisis or a catastrophe, the way people behave and and often come together and surprise you. There, there's always this this image that when things get bad, people will uh, go at one another's throats. They'll tear each other apart. But in fact, in my experience, what people tend to do is come together and support one another. Not always, but generally speaking. And I, I, I think it's a great privilege to be able to see people uh, and if, if possible to help, not directly, but by revealing problems uh, shortages of food, shortages of shelter, uh, so that others can come and help. And, and uh, it, you know, that, it's a great privilege. Mm, fantastic. So just talking about crisis, I'd like to move on to talk about your role as the global environment editor. So personally, I've been involved in a lot of environmental activism. I organise and participate in strikes and demonstrations. Uh, and the main aim of these is to gain media attention, as often things are overlooked by governments. So it seems activism has played quite a significant role in recent environmental legislation and changes, and it's been in the media a lot. So I'm wondering, how do you perceive climate activism? And as a journalist, what stands out most to you about recent things? Than in the past. In the climate issue has been around in, in public consciousness for at least 30 years. And there's been ebbs and flows, but I've never seen such a dynamic period as we've seen in the last two years as a result of the school strikes, as a result of Extinction Rebellion and, and various campaigns. I think it's incredibly important to, to, to keep this in, in the mind of politicians because sometimes you speak to politicians and you say, you know, don't you realise just uh, how much of a risk we all face as a result of a, a warming world. And, and the response is often, well, yes, I know the risks, but when I talk to my constituents, that's not the first thing they ever talk about. That's not a big concern to most people there. You know? and, and yet when you have 
people on the streets, when you have people's own children talking to them and saying, I'm worried, it's my future. It really has made a difference. And I, I think uh, it's been incredibly encouraging as a journalist and as someone who's sort of been covering this and involved in this for, for more than 10 years to see how much progress has been made. And, and you know, of course, we talk about uh, Greta Thunberg and what she's done to, to really sort of inspire people. But there are many other stories. And one I did very recently, I thought was amazing, was um, in... Uh, from South Korea, I, I did it under lockdown in the UK, so it was all Zoom conferences and uh, all done virtually. But uh, I spoke to the youngest lawmaker in South Korea, and Yo Jong Lee, and she she was a year ago, she was on the streets protesting, and inspired by Greta Thunberg and others. I mean, she's been in the climate movement for some time. She's she's not as young as your generation. She's, she's in her thirties uh, and she's a lawyer, but she was just sort of one of the crowd for a long time, uh, albeit a very, very intelligent uh, and, and active one. But because the climate movement has taken this prominence, the president went to all these civil society groups and said, suggest some candidates for the next parliamentary election. And she was nominated. She won a seat. She's the youngest member of parliament in South Korea. And she told the party, look, I want to stand with you. This is the ruling party. It's like conservative. Well, it's not a conservative party. It's more liberal. But anyway, the ruling party in South Korea, she said, but you have, you know, what I want you, what I propose is that you have a green new deal in your campaign manifesto. And they adopted it. So there she's gone from being on the streets to uh, getting elected and then getting the government to adopt a green new deal. I mean, this shows how much can be done. And I think I would hope that as this sort of generation of young activists increasingly comes of political age, that we'll see more and more of this in the future. So I'm, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm incredibly inspired by this. Wow, that's a really interesting story, actually. I hadn't heard about that before. So you're talking about how great activism is and everything. I'm wondering if you've been involved in any grassroots activism at all, or if you've felt compelled to join any ever? I mean, I go on marches, all sorts of demonstrations for all sorts of causes. And you know, some media organizations frown on that. But the Guardian's like, yes, you you know, you have your views, you're entitled to, um, to, to campaign for them in your, in your private time. I have tended to do things more on my own initiative than join other groups now, because I, I think I do try to have some distance. You know, I'm, I'm, in touch all the time with Amnesty and Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth and lots of other organisations. And I think if I'm, you know, if I'm asking them questions, it'd be weird if I'm also a member. So I, I have a lot of sympathy for what they do, but I don't join them. When I was a student, I was a member of lots of different political and, and campaign organisations. Um, but yeah, these days, I, I, I think the main organizations I'm involved with are ones that, as you said in your introduction, that I was involved in sort of founding. But yes, no, I think there's a, there is a place for, for journalists to be activists. Not, not all journalism is activism. Not all activism should be journalism. There's some crossover. And I think the main thing is to be constantly searching to, to get as close to the, the truth as, as possible. And, but recognize you're never ever likely to get there entirely but but to have that in mind 
All right, so yeah, just coming back to what you just said about initiatives you founded, would you like to tell us some more about the Rainforest Journalism Fund? Ah, yes, I'd love to. So this is a, a foundation that provides money for journalists who want to report in the Amazon and other rainforests around the world. Because it's these remote regions of the world are very expensive to visit and they're extremely important environmentally. But it's difficult for journalists to go. So these places tend to be underreported. There's lots of things happening there that kind of go under the world radar just because there's nobody there to, to, to tell you what's happened or at least to convey what's happened to a wider audience. So there are 20 or 30 grants available every year to journalists both in the Amazon region and in other countries. We will cover their travel costs and production costs and, and sometimes the salaries for a few days of work as well. And just generally encouraging more coverage. And this is this is something that I and five other journalists, who we were all at the time based in Brazil, we got together and we created this organization because uh, we, we knew how expensive and how difficult it can be to go there. Since then, we've, we've got backing from the Norwegian government fund. Uh, so there's like, it's a $5 million five-year program, and it's now administered by the Pulitzer Center in the U.S., so it's grown quite big and we meet once a year, although obviously this year that's not going to be possible. And yeah, we've, we've been going now for a year and a half, so it's still fairly early days, but we've had some excellent projects. So that's been very interesting to be involved with. And now we're trying to find ways to report on the Amazon without visiting the Amazon. So it kind of goes against our original goal of trying to get more journalists into the Amazon. But right now that would be a bad thing because you could carry disease uh, and the communities there are at very high risk because many of them are indigenous and in the past they've suffered horribly as a result of uh, imported diseases. But what we're trying to do is encourage more digital storytelling, more use of sort of satellite data, more, tele- more, more money for telephone interviews with people who are there uh, and maybe more, more investment in um, presentation in sort of like web pages and, and that sort of thing. So trying to be, trying to adapt, trying to be creative, like everybody doing everything these days. Great. You said you'd like to highlight the situation in the Brazilian Amazon. Would you like to speak a little about that? Yeah, I, 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 I'd just like to draw as many people's attention as possible to what's happening right now in the Brazilian Amazon, which is under pressure, under threat from so many different directions, um, largely because of the the actions of the Brazilian president, Jair Bolsonaro, who has been extremely reckless with regard to health and the COVID pandemic, but is also, since he took power, been doing all he can to weaken protections for indigenous people who live in the forest and for the forest itself. So we're seeing a weakening of those defences, human defences and institutional defences as a result of the political situation and as a result of the pandemic. And there are worrying signs already this year. Last year was a terrible year for deforestation. This year, the signs are again that things uh, are heading in a very bad direction. 
And the, the death rate in Amazonian cities like Manaus from COVID are amongst the worst in Brazil, which is amongst the worst in the world. So the more attention that can be put on this issue and the more pressure that can be brought to bear on Brazilian government, on the Brazilian government and Brazilian companies, the better. I know that Extinction Rebellion and Fridays for Future have, have tried to you know, put more light on this. I know that on the 28th of May, there'll be a big Artists United for Amazonia event online with lots of big Hollywood stars and others to try to draw attention to this. But you know, the more the word can spread, the more people are doing Facebook posts and tweets and Instagram messages and, and so on about this, the better. We'll also be sharing a few of these resources in the description box to this video if anyone is interested to hear more about that. So we've spoken about how grassroots activism plays a significant role in addressing climate change, but ultimately it still relies a lot on the need for institutional change. So thinking about the coronavirus crisis and looking to the future, what do you think governments need to be doing to ensure a climate positive recovery from the crisis? I, I think this, this is... a, a a very important question, maybe the most important question of our age. We have seen how much change is possible. We've seen it for all the wrong reasons because of the virus pandemic, but we know how life can change dramatically and it can change dramatically for the better as well. We're all enjoying cleaner air, hearing more birdsong, knowing that wildlife has had something of a respite. We know that emissions are down. We know that the renewable energy is doing a fantastic job providing most of our electricity during the pandemic. Uh, we haven't used coal for more than a month in the UK. All of these things, there's, there's obviously less traffic on the roads, there's less aviation emissions. Many of these things are really positive things. And we do need to make sure that you know we deal with the economic side effects of what's happening. But as we do that, let's not just go back to business as usual. Let's go to a sort of a new, healthier normal. And that's the, the, the debate that is now underway in many parts of the world. And I know that in, inside Parliament at the moment, a major group, a cross-party group is discussing exactly how to do this. And there will be a lot of proposals coming out in the future about how we have a green recovery, not a black sort of fossil fuel recovery, but a green recovery. We need to create lots of jobs. A lot of people are suffering, but let's do that in a way where they're not tied to old industries that will have to be phased out anyway. So let's tr try to create new jobs that will last uh, a longer time. These, these are the messages I'm hearing again and again from climate scientists, from people in international organizations. And I, and I think it's, it's essential, as you say, that the government acts on this. But the government won't act on it unless they're getting pressure from below. It's much easier for them to go back to the way things were before. That's more comfortable, it's simpler, there's less stress. But uh, the more they feel that the public, that voters want this, the easier it will be for them to make expensive and difficult and challenging decisions. So, you know, The Guardian has uh, recently run a green recovery series, looking at some of the options. We'll be doing more on this in the future. And I, you know, I think, I think it's quite exciting that 
after something very terrible that involved a lot of suffering, that there is this possibility that something good can come out of that. Just as after the Second World War, a, a, a weary public voted for change. And, and you saw that in the one, two, three years after the Second World War, led to the creation of the National Health Service and led to the creation of the United Nations. And this sort of very idealistic, forward-thinking set of new institutions came into being because people saw what change was possible and decided they wanted something better rather than going back and repeating the mistakes of the past. And, and hopefully uh, we have that same opportunity. I, th I certainly think we should do all we can to, to explore that opportunity right now. Couldn't agree more. I totally think something good can come out of this. Good to hear. <laughs> well, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us on our podcast today. It's been really fascinating to talk to you and it's provoked a lot of thought in me and hopefully in our listeners as well. For any of our listeners who are interested in reading more about climate activism or who are keen to get involved, we've attached a brief reading list and a few websites in the description box. Alongside this, we've also attached our own website for anyone interested in finding out a little more about what we do and what we are. This has been Rachel Trippier, Oxford Society for International Development. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please join us next time. <laughs>